Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. One of my enduring childhood practice memories is of the binder my mom maintained in which she would write out a list of all the things I had to practice in every practice session with an empty circle next to each one. The idea being, once I'd finished working on that part of my practice to-do list for the day, she'd fill in the corresponding circle with tiny eyes and a smile, transforming it into a smiley face. She called this whole process happy face. And did this make practicing all unicorns and rainbows? No, it certainly did not. But while I'm sure there were times when I grabbed a pen and drew in frowny faces and tears when she wasn't looking, I did do the work. And when I look back, I feel like in many ways, my most dedicated years of practice were in my first 10 years of playing the violin, much of which involved using this happy face method of planning and monitoring my practice activities. On the face of it, this seems like a relatively inconsequential part of my actual practice routine, but I came across a study recently that brought back all these memories and made me wonder if it was more significant than I realized at the time. Because the act of keeping track of your practice process is actually a strategy known as self-monitoring, which is part of an approach to learning known as self-regulated learning. We've explored some of the research on self-regulated learning in the past, but the gist is that self-regulated learning involves taking charge of your own learning process and being your own coach or teacher. Taking the initiative to set your own goals, monitor your progress, and make adjustments as you go. Activities like happy face do seem pretty trivial. So how much of a difference in learning could self-monitoring possibly make? I found an older study in this area to actually be pretty illustrative. Elementary school teachers at two schools were shown a math test of subtraction problems and asked to nominate students in their classes whom they thought would struggle and have difficulty getting more than 25% of them correct. This led to a pool of 30 students, ages 8 to 9, who were presented with a set of subtraction problems and asked how certain they were that they could solve them, a simple assessment of self-efficacy. Then they took a subtraction test consisting of 18 subtraction problems. The kids were given as much time as they needed to solve the problems so that researchers could calculate a persistence score, 
based on how long they continued to work on a difficult problem before giving up and moving on. After everyone completed the test, the students were randomly assigned to one of three groups and spent 30 minutes per day for three days working through similar types of subtraction problems. Before handing in their work for the day, one group was asked to count the number of pages they completed during the study session and to write that number down on a progress page at the back of their packet of problems. This was the self-monitoring group. Another group was asked to take their packet to a proctor at the end of the practice, as the proctor would count the number of pages completed and record this at the back of the packet while the student watched. This was the external monitoring group. And then a final group simply turned in their work each day with no recording of how much work they had actually accomplished, and this was the control group. After the third study session, the students took another test, similar to the first one, to see if anything had changed. And there were some interesting changes indeed. Each group completed about the same number of pages per day, so there were no significant differences between the groups in terms of how much work they did. That is to say, they each practiced about the same amount. However, there was a significant difference in the group's test scores on the post-test. The original test scores were all in the same kind of cluster of scores, with 2.5, 2.7, and 2.4 questions correct out of 18 for the self-monitoring, external monitoring, and control groups, respectively. But on the final test, although all three groups improved, the monitoring groups scored significantly higher than the control group, with scores of 13.3 for the self-group and 12.1 for the external group, compared to 5.8 for the control group. The students' self-efficacy, or confidence in their ability to actually achieve the goals that they set out to achieve, also changed over the course of the three study sessions. Before the first test, the students felt that they could answer an average of 5.1, 4.8, and 5.0 questions out of 18 for the self, external, and control groups, respectively. But before the final test, the two monitoring groups felt that they could answer 15.6 and 14.9 questions, while the control group's confidence remained low at just 7.2 questions out of 18. This increased confidence was reflected in their persistence as well. On the first test, the average amount of time spent on each question was about the same across all three groups, 15.7, 17.2, and 14.8 seconds per question for the self, external, and control groups. But on the final test, while the control group's time per question increased just slightly to 18.6 seconds per problem, the monitoring group's time almost doubled to 30.6 for the self-monitoring group and 33.7 for the external monitoring group. Simply counting the number of completed pages during each study session seems like an incredibly small thing, but self-regulated learning research suggests that it's little things like this that help students cultivate a greater sense of ownership of their own studying and become more autonomous learners, which I imagine would have significant learning effects in the long term in the same way that compounding interest doesn't seem like a big deal on a day-to-day -day basis, but really starts to add up over time. Indeed, a 2017 study surveyed 272 athletes at all levels of skill to see if there might be any relationship between how self-regulated their practice was and the level of competition that they had attained. And as it turns out, the more self-regulated an athlete's training was, 
the more likely they were to be at the elite national or international level of competition, whereas those with lower self-regulation scores were more likely to be at a less elite state or regional level or recreational or local level of competition. And of the six elements of self-directed learning they measured, like planning, self-monitoring, evaluation, reflection, effort, and self-efficacy, the single factor that most effectively differentiated elite and less elite athletes from recreational athletes was, yep, you guessed it, self-monitoring. So what exactly does self-monitoring entail? Well, I think it can take many forms, but the essence is that you actively observe and monitor the process of training or practicing as you're doing it, which might involve keeping track of whether you're using your time effectively or making progress towards the practice goals you set for the session and adjusting accordingly if you aren't, or stepping back for a moment to gauge whether you're adequately focused on the problem at hand or starting to space out a little bit, asking yourself whether your solutions for ironing out a tricky shift are leading you in the right direction, or if it might be more productive to move on to a different problem for the moment, or whether slow practice has reached the end of its usefulness for that particular issue, and maybe it's time to switch to note grouping or rhythm practice. All this to say, I think self-monitoring probably evolves and becomes more sophisticated over time as one's level of playing improves and as one's ability to gauge progress and become discerning of finer nuances and details becomes increasingly refined, and as your toolbox of practice strategies expands as well. But we have to start somewhere, and maybe the most important thing is to build self-monitoring into one's practice routine as a habit, even if it's at the most basic level at first. So for this week, I'm tempted to see what happens if I ask my daughter to simply write out her own practice to-do list as my mom once did for me and check things off as she goes. If that goes well, maybe she'll be willing to take a moment after practicing to write down what she actually ended up doing as well. You can find links to this week's study and other resources like practice hacks and the audition cheat sheet at bulletproofmusician.com blog. And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think might also enjoy experimenting with this during the coming week. 